Welcome to Write Good, the podcast that helps you write good. I'm R.S. Benedict, pronouns she, her. In today's episode, we're going to talk about why we, as a literary community, need to make space for queer fiction that is messy and unfiltered and uncomfortable and difficult and perhaps even problematic. (gasps) (laughs) Joining us today is horror author Gretchen Felker-Martin. Thanks for coming on the show. I'm really glad to be here, R.S. Thanks for having me. Thanks. The reason I invited you on is that you wrote this really great piece for the outline called What's the Harm in Reading? And it's about this controversy that erupted online over Isabel Fall's military sci-fi story that briefly ran in Clark's world. Right. I sexually identify as an attack helicopter. Right. I sexually identify as an attack helicopter. So let's talk a little bit about the story and the reaction to it, because the way the internet went after the author was, at least in my opinion, really troubling. It was disgusting. Yeah. (laughs) I, I was completely disgusted by it. It made me so sad. Yeah, I think that was her first published story. And to have like your first published story, you know, she's probably I'm sure she's like a sci fi fan to have these major sci fi writers and editors go after you like that. That's got to be like, terrifying. Yeah, what I remember is that it was it wasn't her first published story, but it was her first published story as a woman. Oh, which is even kind of more brutal. Just oh, my gosh, immediately facing that intense moralized rejection yeah that's that's such a vulnerable emotional situation jesus yeah to get into it to those of you who haven't read the story it's this really fantastic i think military sci-fi story that's sort of about it's kind of hard to to sum up but it's about a woman who's had her brain altered by the military in order to make her gender identity an attack helicopter pilot. Right. Or not even a pilot, just she's right. the helicopter. As the helicopter. They're so synonymous. instead of identifying as a woman, she identifies as a helicopter. Right. And it's so, so interesting. I mean, it's based on, well, the title comes from this one, like, kind of gross transphobic joke as people have called it the rights one joke <laughs> that they keep saying over and over again and i guess she just took that joke and said well what would it be to actually sexually identify as an attack helicopter what would that be and it became this like really extraordinary just this really interesting analysis of gender roles and gendered violence and what really blew my mind is the that she did this in a genre that is not typical for that kind of that kind of thought like military sci-fi has a reputation for being very reactionary and very right wing and she used it to talk about stemming from Heinlein and everything. Oh yeah, yeah. Um it tends to be I mean because it's military sci-fi it's also like very pro-war and and that tends to be on the conservative side. And the fact that she thought to use this genre as a way to explore gender roles and and queerness I think is so interesting. Like, I never would have thought to do that. Yeah, I agree. And I think especially, you know, in a day and age where we've just gone through this big sort of cultural and intra-community upheaval about trans soldiers and the military. And, right. You know, whether we're allowed to serve or not. Uh, I'm transgender, just for the audience's edification. Right. 
I mean, my personal opinion is that the army is a blood machine for pigs and no one should serve. Um, right. So I, I have a hard time getting too worked up about who yeah. has the right to tote a gun around and murder Iraqi civilians. Right. But it's certainly, it's fascinating because people equate queer liberation with the ability to participate in sort of the most destructive imperialist colonial elements of society. Yeah. Sort of in much the same way that we have girl powered national politics, you know, right. that it's a, it's an act of, of feminism for a, a woman to hold some wildly cruel and oppressive office. Right. There was a, there was that piece about a female drone pilot and just making it kind of uh, to be like, oh, this is awesome. You know, this is so feminist. They call her Lady Death. This woman can drone strike <sighs> in an Iraqi wedding ceremony just like the men can. And this was at the same time. This I think this came out at the time when we were starting to become officially aware that our drone program was hitting way more innocent bystanders than it was hitting targets. And it's right. just this horrific, horrific program that kills a lot of innocent people. And out of it's like, yeah, women can do war crimes too. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Maybe it was you who brought this up to me. Though I had, I had seen the essay years ago, but there's this essay from 2014 called uh, Queering the Experience of Killing in War. <laughs> it's about Ooh. being a drone pilot. Right. And it's drones are queering warfare. Just ah! the most horrific synthesis of like marginalized identity politics from an ultra individualist standpoint. Right. And, you know, tactical murder. Right. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah, and and outside of drone warfare, there's also um I, I mean, the way we sell imperialism, the way we sell war, a, a lot of the time is to say, like, well, those people were bombing, they don't believe in women's rights. And those people were bombing, they don't believe in, you know, what they do to gays over there. It's like, well, our bombs, you know, hit women as well as men, our bombs hit gay people as well as straight people. Like, we, right. we're not selective. Like, this isn't, you know, we're using this thing that should be, like, anti-establishment or was anti-establishment in order to push, like, more domination. And it's... Right. It's not like we're going in ugh. and giving everyone a Kinsey test before we put two bullets on the back of their heads. Right. Right. Absolutely. And I mean, the story, I, I don't know what the specific um, inspirations were, but I, I can't help but think of those those things that are going on in the back of our culture where this story comes out of. And... And the way that the author kind of reclaims this like gross transphobic joke, I thought was really daring and fun. And it kind of made me think of like feminist horror movies like Ginger Snaps or Teeth. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Where it's like, oh, I'm a monster. Okay, I'll be a monster. Or like, oh, feminists all have vagina dentata. All right, let's make a movie that's literally about that. Right. <laughs> Just lean in as hard as you can. And, you know, I agree with you. I think it's a really fun, interesting, beautiful story. Yeah. One element I really love is the ambiguity about the connections between the pilot's born body and right. and the helicopter that she's lightly implied to be connected to in some physical way, as well as through brainwashing right. Right. and surgical reassignment of unspecified nature. I think it's great not to get into the nitty gritty there because it just lets your imagination yeah. run wild. Yeah, and in that way, too, like, the helicopter is as much of her gender as, like, high heels and skirts and lipstick are for a woman. Right, it's exactly. Like, okay, you do, it's not physically, 
you, but at the same time, it's so considered part of womanhood. Mm-hmm. And, and the part of it that I thought was so interesting that I loved was she's got this co-pilot. He's a, he's a gunner. And at one point he develops a conscience and she basically accuses him of having gender dysphoria. And it's this really interesting statement about how our ideas of manhood and masculinity are so wrapped up in violence and domination and cruelty that a man who says, I don't want to kill people, I don't want to murder people anymore, like isn't even a man anymore. Right, right. That he's experiencing some kind of fundamental spiritual conflict inside himself. Right. And it's like, what? What? You're not even a man. And it's like, wow, that's such, that's just so brutal and devastating. It cuts very deep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just, oh, it was just fantastic, this story. And I absolutely loved it. And unfortunately, the larger internet, particularly like writer Twitter, did not really appreciate what the author was doing, and the author got some really, really, really ugly uh, pushback, which absolutely sucks. It got so, so ugly. Yeah, it really did. It exposed sort of a lot of fault lines in our community about how we approach fiction. Yeah. And how we sort of moralize at and around fiction. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah, I, I remember in your article seeing examples of like, people who were asking it to be taken down, including one, I remember one writer had said, I haven't read it, but I can tell from the title that this is harmful and bad. And it's like, are you kidding me? Yes. You haven't read it? Uh, I believe that was uh, uh, Hugo winner N.K. Jemison. (laughs) Oh, no. No, no, no. And it's not a long story. It's like a 15 minute read tops. It's not right. it's not that hard to read. It's not like a full novel. No, it was free and online and available to all. It's a quick read. And it's a terrific read. And I highly recommend reading it. Yeah, everyone who popped off after reading the title really has has no excuse. It's just lazy. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's so clearly like a reclamation or something like right. I, I don't know. No like, one's like going to use that unironically. Yeah. I mean, the word queer itself is reclaiming an insult. Like, right. the fuck on. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you still see that dragged through the gutters in a, a million yeah. internecine yeah. community yeah. conflicts. Yeah. But there were people who, like, were just attacking the writer and, and say, just calling it harmful and saying this is bad, this is transphobic this is misogynistic god it makes me think of that tyler the creator tweet you know how is cyberbullying real just turn off your computer just close yeah. your eyes yeah <laughs> and i remember some of the art some of the the comments to it really bothered me because someone said like oh this made me feel bad so it's bad like oh what? my god i know what like man i hope you don't ever read like a real book for adults yeah <laughs> What or the or the entire horror genre? Like I don't know how you cope with this. Right, the Hellbound Heart is going to seriously bum you out, my dude. <laughs> yeah, it it's kind of bewildering. Like this, it, it kind of goes to this idea that all fiction needs to be written like young adult fiction. You know, like really simplistic morals and happy endings. And it's like goofus and okay. gallant comics. Hmm? Goofus and gallant comics. Those old. Uh, right. I'm trying to remember what they're from, maybe like a 4-H magazine or something. Yeah, yeah Goofus and Gallant. Um, where, you know, you have first, you have this example of Goofus, who's is just a sort of jerk-off kid who can't do anything right. <laughs> and then you have Gallant, 
who, you know, sweeps in and, and does everything that a, a junior 50s husband should do. Yeah. <laughs> and, it's, you know, people unironically want that. They want the Hayes Code. Yeah. They want to make sure that everything in the book is handled in this morally tidy way that leaves everyone totally certain of where they stand in the broader culture. Yeah. And it's an it's not even an infant's way of interacting with media because children can accept ambiguity. <laughs> right. Um, it's, yeah. It's and just, just the idea really scary. I find deeply disturbing is that the purpose of a story is to make you feel good. Mm, yeah. Like we're not, we're not making happy meals here. Like we're, ugh, I'm pretty God. sure I've never in my life written a story that I sat down thinking about, you know, how it would make people feel good. And I wanted people yeah. to feel good while reading it. That sounds so boring and stupid to me. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's just art as customer service. Right. Like, I'm going to give you a smile and a toy. And it's like, people saw this story and are like, where's my toy? <laughs> where's my toy? I want the Batman toy. Right. Like, where's my Batman toy? Like, that's, this isn't, it's, it's supposed to make you feel bad. It's supposed to kind of make you think about things. Where's my toy? <laughs> yeah. Oh. You know, I think in particular, the combination of social elements going on in this story is so potent. Yeah. Um, just because the idea of the government successfully repackaging this thing that is so revolutionary to the queer and trans communities and using it to spread killing is, you know, it's happening around us. Oh, yeah. All the time. Yes. It's just, it just if you ever need to remind yourself, my personal favorite icon is when they, um, they painted a, I think a, F-22 fighter jet pink for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. <laughs> and it just, just staring at that, it's such a rich image, you know? Truly yeah. anything, anything can be made an excuse for mass murder. <laughs> it's like in John Carpenter's The Thing, when this monster disguises itself as your friends yes, exactly. in order to murder you. <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh, God, it's hard. And I, I, I think one of the parts I really liked about the story, too, is just basically they code this violence into your gender because we'll, like, mindlessly obey gender more than any other coding. Right. It's so in ingrained and we're so acutely attuned to the shame of getting it wrong. Right. And, and, and like, to the point where even the, even the, the sort of AI computers run by this, um, the enemy are kind of doing that too. They're mm. mindlessly planting pear trees and they don't understand why. Yeah. And it's this great parallel and it's, just, oh God, I, I love the story. It's, it's rad. And it's really, really good. I really, really hope we see more from her in the not too distant future. Yeah, me too. I Isabel Fall, if you are one of the eight people who listen to this podcast, <laughs> <laughs> please write more and publish more. You're, ve you're very cool and, and you're super talented and insightful. And, and all the cool kids like you and you can come sit with us. Yeah, look, yeah, you can hang out with us. The cool kids like you. Fuck the haters. Fuck them. They're nerds. We'll, we'll make fun of them. We'll, we'll smoke cigarettes behind the gym together like the cool kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But unfortunately, as a result of the pushback, um, and unfortunately, too, it was a perfect storm of bad timing because uh, Neil Clark, the editor of Clark's World, was recovering from surgery. Right. He was pretty much out of commission. Yeah, he couldn't step in to do the damage control that he really needed to do because, you know, he was recovering from surgery. 
So Isabel was pretty vulnerable and ended up asking him to just take the piece down, and the piece went down, and that sucks. And it's just infuriating that the genre community saw this really interesting, provocative piece, and instead of, like, thinking about it or even asking about it, it's just like, let's all condemn this person as fast as we can because it made us feel bad things. It's like, hey, that's how you... You know, making people uncomfortable is is getting them to kind of question themselves, and that's good. Right. And, and, <laughs> you know, to, to make a, a kind of an obvious point, men do this shit every day in in much less insightful, interesting ways. You know, they write stories that are, are challenging or difficult or unpleasant to look at or read. Mm. And, you know, they basically just waltz along with their lives, but there's something about these particular online communities, so many of which have roots in like the fandom communities of the early 2000s that are just so hell bent on blood the second they see a woman do anything. (laughs) Yeah, I have noticed that with my fiction. Like I I tend to write very flawed protagonists and and they're like anti-heroes or just downright like assholes a lot of my my protagonists are just downright terrible people who do bad things but i get so much more pushback when it's a woman absolutely way more so there's this trap of like likability for female characters and female writers i deliberately use kind of a gender neutral pen name just so that i'm not i don't fall into that trap as much hopefully and I, I think women kind of fall into the trap, this trap of like, you have to be likable. And similar to that, queer creatives kind of fall into this trap of respectability. Absolutely. Like, like Isabel Fall got in trouble for writing a story that expressed these messy, complicated thoughts and emotions about gender, about queerness, about oppressive social institutions and how they exploit us. And her story was uncomfortable and wild and in your face, and it wasn't respectable. It wasn't aspirational. She didn't offer up this like non-threatening, family-friendly role model. Right. But how many cisgender heterosexual artists do that? <laughs> you know. <laughs> and even even if they were, why should we want to emulate them? Yeah. You know. Yeah. The strength of the queer community has always been that it is more overt about desire and fear Mm. partially because for so long we've lived our lives in the open sort of at the mercy of random strangers around us right just the act of you know holding someone's hand or walking out your front door is uh a thing that could be provocation for murder so you you learn pretty quickly to get your laughs in before the curtain drops yeah and i think in this world post gay marriage legalization right you know we live in this sort of all-encompassing security state that's very paranoid and really stokes paranoia between groups and within groups right i think that people have become infected by the idea that those kinds of deviations from the norm are hurtful Mm -hmm. and and aggressive and bad and you know, I mean, it's basically that they've swallowed and internalized all the lines that, like, the family values associations of the 1980s came up with. Right. I, I do remember before um, same-sex marriage was legalized, there was a big argument from radical queers that in some ways it might bring more 
pressure to conform. Yeah. Like, okay, you can get married, but now you also have to have the white picket fence and the 2.3 children and right, the, you know, this and the that. And, and I worry, like, is that, are we really seeing that here? You know, like by being, yes, you can be in a same-sex relationship, but you still have to fit into this traditional culture, this traditional hierarchy, and this traditional idea of respectability. But like, who's deciding what respectability is? Right. You know, those things happen at the top of the pyramid. Yeah. And I, I think that even the people who think this way, who have their hearts in the right place are doing the establishment's work. Yeah. And I think there's a million, a million sources you could point to for this behavior. You know, the things I was just talking about, mm. uh, gay marriage and gay integration and assimilation. Right. We have an art landscape, the biggest, most visible pieces of which are just so incredibly studiously bland. Mm. You know, things like, the Marvel movies or the new Star oh, Wars movies that are just like, oh, yeah. they're unseasoned oatmeal. They're nothing. They're just like made in a lab. It's kind of like makes me think of how, you know, McDonald's food. It's specifically designed to like scientifically kind of designed to hit these measures of like saltiness, sweetness, fattiness to like hit all of your pleasure receptors without actually tasting like anything. Cause it really, if it really tastes like anything, it'll turn someone off. It's right. Like, well, I don't like spicy. I don't like bitter. I don't like that. But it's just hits your lizard brain. And it's like, <laughs> okay, I want this now. And that's what so much of our art by committee is it's like, okay, the our market research and our algorithms show people want this and that. And so much of it is written, like, according to a really strict formula of here goes the plot twist. And here's what we want there. And here's the line that's going to be repeated. And it's so blah. It's just, you know, <laughs> That I, I agree with you in principle, um, but the big distinction <laughs> is that the McDonald's trick works. <laughs> <laughs> Marvel, the last one that I saw, I think was uh, the newest Thor movie, and I this is this is honest to God, this is the first time this has ever happened in my life. I fell asleep in the theater. <laughs> I was so I was just bored out of my mind. Time well spent. Yeah. <laughs> At least you got a nap out of it. That's true in a nice, cool, dark room. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. So there's some benefit to it, I I'd guess. Say that's but... worth twelve bucks. Yeah, yeah, you could have napped for free probably somewhere else. Probably that's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> but but anyway, this trap of respectability and blandness. It, it's I, I worry there's a an idea of trying to like make queer art kind of fall into this bland trap, like that that there's a just an attempt to instead of like changing the artistic and cultural landscape trying to just, oh, let's put a really vaguely queer character into this Marvel movie. It's like, oh, okay. I mean, I, I understand why that would be of interest yeah. to some people. Yeah, but, but to it's me, not enough. It's not even just that it's not enough. It's that it's demeaning to be fed from the master's table. Mm. You know, I want no part of what they see as art. And I want to not necessarily spend all my time drumming on the heads of people who do want that you know yeah. uh salute go chase your bliss whatever you boring fuckers <laughs> but i really want to encourage in members of my own community seeking out the art of your peers yeah and the art of your you know your forefathers and foremothers and four people and just being more in your own world and not in this sort of zoned out pleasure panopticon right 
And it's again, it's not even it's not even pleasure. It's just like brain noise. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's not like it's not like they're making Bram Stoker's Dracula every few years and just like <laughs> throwing crazy Francis Ford Coppola death baptism montages at you to, <laughs> you know, basically trick your emotions with some sort of laser pointer. It's just, it's just like you said, it's the same formula over and over again. And it's very dull. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I feel like there's a difference between a story like generic hero story number two with a, a minor queer character in it and versus a story by a queer artist about a queer character like it has a wildly different feel to it absolutely structurally or, or in terms of mood and you're gonna get so much more out of that than out of like oh look one of the background characters in the live action beauty and the beast kind of winked at a guy <laughs> right wow that that will surely usher in the revolution yeah and it just there there's more than the surface there's something below the surface and when this is coming from a place that's really genuine it means a lot more there are different ways of telling stories yes not just different characters in the same story over and over and over again you and know, you, disney's not going to tell you that story no absolutely not uh dredging the the memory banks here but i'm thinking back to college when i took a mythopoetics course and we read mm -hmm. joyce and we learned about the idea of you know the the feminine narrative mm. and this kind of like fierce circuitous interiority that characterizes books that are written by and about women about the experience of femininity in our culture mm. Not that Joyce is a woman, but he's he's frequently cited as an example because so much of the book is about unconscious fantasies and huh. anxieties. And I, I think that this connects and overlaps with queer fiction, as I understand it, mm. which is also sort of relentlessly focused on this interior experience. And I think it's because, as with womanhood, when you're queer so much of your life happens without reflection. You know, by and large, mm. we're not raised by queer parents. We don't have queer friends growing up. Everything that happens to form our identities happens in this this kind of fraught vacuum. Mm. Um, and that creates a very specific kind of fiction. Right. And there's a lot, too, in that you can't be super public about everything in, in a way that men kind of are. Right. So much is in these like very private little conversations that are not shared with the world and stories that are not passed down and not recorded and not really taught to others and not considered important. Absolutely. That kind of affects the way you relate to stories and it, it affects the way you tell and, and hear stories. Well, like whisper networks, right? Like right, that's right. such a feminine thing to have a whisper network that I, I don't know if men have that kind of thing. <laughs> I don't I don't think they do. You know, I, I have been treated as a man in my life. And there was certainly just a stifling absence of any communication. Mm. Not that my experience was everyone else's, but I remember right. it as being just brutally isolating. Mm. Which, yeah, again, I, I think is a wonderful reason for us to prioritize meeting the fiction of trans people, especially, you know, trans women who are, are so 
culturally vilified yeah with openness and patience and love right engendering revolutionary behavior in your own life is not knowing all the right things or 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 attaining some mystical level of woke where you're you're permanently never going to hurt anyone again Um, it's about meeting real life situations with courage and Mm. grace and finding space for people you've been taught to revile right and that you know that often includes ourselves yeah yeah and and a lot of this process a lot of like opening this up and and sort of hearing from from more um queer creatives particularly trans women um a lot of this i think relies on depends on everyone else to to offer a little bit of breathing room yeah absolutely like women and trans women i think probably the most are restricted a bit more in how you can express yourself and punished a lot harder for fucking it up and just given so much less wiggle room absolutely male authors write a lot of really problematic works which i think is fine it's it's good to have some a certain amount of like openness and experimentation and anti-heroes and stuff and and that's okay but when a woman does it and especially in this instance when a trans woman did it it there's such a harder response there's so much less breathing room and as a result our culture is a lot emptier and narrower and poorer for it and what infuriated me the most was seeing this from people who are supposed to be kind of liberal and supposed to be like very pro lgbtq and and what they i mean effectively what they ended up doing was taking this really heartfelt and honest expression of what it what gender is or what transitioning might mean by this this trans woman writer and just scaring the shit out of her and right. shaming her into silence and it's like and, you, you know no <laughs> she actually spent at least one night voluntarily committed jesus yeah she was so freaked out and had been so intensively bullied oh god damn it yeah it's really really sad she's from what I know, she's okay now. That's good. Uh, and we did, for the record, uh, we did reach out to her for comment, and she's currently sort of avoiding uh, yeah. public attention for uh, for obvious reasons. Zero blame there. Yeah, um, absolutely. Good God, I didn't you, I didn't know that. That's horrible. <laughs> how do you put? How do you do that? How do you put someone in a state to the point where they commit themselves and then think like, I'm the good guy here. You know, I can't even... I did a good thing. I think uh, I do not stay current on, like, um, (laughs) animation community drama, which seems to be pretty constant. Yeah. But I did hear something, because I'm eternally peripheral to all of these discussions now, thanks to the four or five essays I've written. Oh, good. Yeah, it's really great. I love it. Um, (laughs) I think two of the artists from jojo's bizarre adventure which is a show i know nothing about Mm. uh hospitalized were hospitalized after suicide attempts wow because they had you know drawn some fan art that people thought was wrong wow which is just yeah fandom melts your brain it really (laughs) does you know we did a two-part episode on on how fandom melts your brain. Basically. I'm gonna have to listen to that. <laughs> it is, yeah, it's it's alarming. I think what what is it? Or, or my guest Tim Heiderich said, the big part of fandom is 
that the media you consume is a part of you. Yeah. So when it 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 so when it's portrayed in a way that you don't agree with, when it changes without your permission, it's like someone's changing this part of you. Right. Without your permission and you freak the fuck out as opposed to just going, "Well, that sucks. I'll watch something else now." <laughs> yeah. I remember that there was this watershed moment for me. And you know, I didn't really I didn't grow up with fandom. Yeah. I was born in the New Hampshire countryside. Hmm. Um, we didn't have TV. My family didn't really have money. And I, you know, I didn't have the internet until I was older. Right. So this is all sort of alien territory to me for a long time. And I read this article by someone It was so impassioned about how when Disney bought Lucasfilm and they like they said that they were going to reset the expanded universe this person was like what an act of destruction i can't believe it and i was just like dog those books are still there you can read them (laughs) you know like the things that a company says don't actually matter and you can have whatever relationship to art you want it's not real. <laughs> no. None of it's real. It is exactly as real yesterday as it was as it is today. It's totally <laughs> And it just makes me started. sad that people allow <laughs> knee-jerk reactions and and corporate memos to dictate their relationship to art. Yeah. I, yeah. Hi, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but oh god, I could talk about that for a million years. Yeah. Um but uh, something I, I wanted to, to bring up is um, in relation to this idea of respectability, this trap of respectability, there's also this trap of didacticism, I think. Um, and in at least in the mainstream, there's this unspoken expectation that queer art has to be didactic. Like it's supposed to be educational, and in particular, it's supposed to educate cisgender heterosexual people. Here's what queerness is. Here's why queerphobia is bad. This is what gay means, and this is why it's bad to be homophobic. In this like really basic, you know, remedial queer studies 101, or even like Sesame Street level of, of education. But didactic art is only one type of art, and you know, maybe a queer creative doesn't feel like being a being a teacher. Like much of art is not didactic. It's unreasonable to expect all art to be didactic. Absolutely. Some art is expressive. It explores emotions, and sometimes those emotions are unpleasant ones. Right. You know, <laughs> I I can't imagine someone reading like Debbie Dreschler's Daddy's Girl and thinking like. <laughs> This should really have explained to me why this is wrong. <laughs> yeah. Some things you have to kind of let burn through you. Right. Anyway, I, I feel like I don't even need to say that I have total contempt for anyone who thinks that all queer art should be like this. Not yeah. that not that there isn't good didactic art. There surely right. is. It's not for me. Right. And also, it's just, it's such a fucking weenie move to demand that everyone make it. Yeah. It, and it's it's unfair. Like if you're belonging to a marginalized group, I think more than more than anybody else, you really need to express some of these feelings and some of these difficult feelings. Yeah. Like having to bottle it up, not just in you know your day to day life, but also in your art, which is this place that normal people use to express themselves. I mean, that's that's the normal thing. What that people 
who make art do it for is to, to <laughs> right. express it is asking asking like LGBTQ creatives to bottle it up because it's too messy or too ugly or too upsetting is really fucked up and cruel. <laughs> yeah, it is. It really is. And something that I found so interesting about this story was this sort of body horror aspect to it. And I remember a lot of the response being negative to that aspect, this sort of body horror aspect. I mean, the idea of just being like part machine in this weird way. But so much of the horror art I love is sort of feminine body body horror, like body horror about childbirth or sexuality, puberty, menstruation. I mean, one of my favorite body horror series is the Alien series, which is all about the horror of pregnancy. Right. The the universal threat of rape. Yeah, and male pregnancy too, and it had such like interesting gender, just interesting gender stuff going on and, and anxieties, and that that's what was so thrilling and exciting and unsettling about it. And I don't know if you've ever read uh, <laughs> the screenwriter Dan O'Bannon's commentary on like the ethos behind how those movies are structured and the themes they get into, but he is so tapped into what those movies are saying. And he had this very explicit idea that he wanted men to feel uncomfortable in the Mm. same way that women feel uncomfortable around dangerous men. Yeah. Yeah. So he creates, you know, this thing that's a a man to men, this sort of third gender that just eats. Right. Like over and over in those movies, it's men who keep getting, you know, face hugged. Yeah. I mean, some t- occasionally there will be a woman, but it's mainly men because it's just like, hey, dudes, this is what it's like. Right. This is what women deal with all the fucking time. How do you feel now? <laughs> <laughs> the only difference is that there's not like a religious lobby in the alien universe telling men that like, no, you have to carry it to full term. It's alive. You can't kill this, you whore. <laughs> like, I guess that would be the Whalen yutani Corporation would be. Right. They're trying to smuggle it back home for, yeah, for testing. Like- Playing the part of the Catholic Church. I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, especially for, for like a queer creative, there's going to be, there are likely a lot of themes of body anxieties and body horror that, that'll be, uh, you know, need to be explored or deserve to be explored and oh, expressed. Absolutely. There's this wonderful book by Porpentine, who's primarily known as a twine author, it's called Psycho Nymph Exile. Huh. And it's this sort of like prose anime novella, I guess is the best way to describe it. Huh. And it's intensely gory. It's intensely about trans body anxiety. And there's this wonderful sequence where she's talking about sort of like the archetypal magical girl transformation from, you know, Sailor Moon and stuff. Right. And this trans girl tries it and gets it wrong and just uh, her body basically glitches out oh god and starts to unspool into these unrelated chunks of femininity and it's oh wow so poignant and so ugly and so immediately relatable yeah yeah and in in a way i think some of that expressive art can do more to teach then didactic art can absolutely like didactic can get you the intellectual idea but expressive art in some ways art is like an empathy machine you can kind of put somebody in someone else's shoes emotionally in Mm -hmm. a way that you can't with other types of media and maybe 
you know, maybe if you can explain to like a cis person, like, see, see that thing, that's what it feels like. They could be like, oh, fuck, that feels real bad. Okay. Yeah, I that get certainly it speaks to my experience. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think a fundamental problem with didactic art is that anyone who really needs to read it either isn't open to it or won't read it. Right. There's also the issue, I think, of the broader spectrum of queer experience. Like, so much of art comes from our experiences, and a person's queer experience, a person's experience in queer relationships, is that's not always positive. No. You know, <laughs> there's no queer academy where we all go and take the same classes. <laughs> and, I mean, same-sex relationships can also, can also be horrifically toxic and abusive. Um, what's her name? Carmen Maria Machado, I think, just released a, a memoir about a really horrible uh, same-sex relationship that she was in recently, and, and it's getting a lot of really good press that I've, I've heard it's fantastic, but she said it was such a difficult thing to talk about, because if you're, you know, writing a woman writing about how you escaped a, an abusive relationship with a man, it's a, there's like this very straightforward... There's very sympathy. You know, the Lifetime original movie format of like okay we know how to talk about this but when it's a relationship between two women it's like i don't know how to approach this and i'm afraid right. of who's the, so which one of you is the bad guy yeah who's the bad guy who's the patriarchy well we're both women who's the patriarchy like uh oh man uh yeah as a uh <laughs> as a trans woman who fled from a an abusive relationship with a person who was, you know, non-binary and much smaller than me, mm. I can definitely empathize with the difficulty of talking about these things because people just, the mold isn't there in their brain. Right. They're like, well, that doesn't make sense. You couldn't possibly have been hurt and it couldn't have been bad. Right. But like all human experiences, parts of queerness are putrescent and awful yeah. In an individual and in a broader sense. Um, and if we don't talk about them, then we will never develop a cultural understanding of them. Right. And and people who've been that through that absolutely have a right to express that and process that through art just the way everybody else does. And, and it's still, I mean, I, I do see sometimes with the sort of woke fiction crowd, there's this tendency to want to divide everybody into like a villain or a victim binary. Right. Like, if you're a member of a marginalized community, you're a victim. And if you're a white cishet male, you're a villain. And that's it. And it's like, n no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. The like, world is way more complicated than that. I'm sorry to tell you. A given number of any, a given percentage of any community, they're going to be just un unbearable, awful people. Um, <laughs> and the rest of us are fuck-ups, too. Right. No one is out there batting a thousand for, for being the perfect queer. Right. And I mean, especially too, if you do belong to a, a community that's been like stigmatized and treated like shit, like that, that is probably going to affect you in, in some ugly ways, unfortunately. I would agree. Yeah. Like, like it sucks, but I mean, that's the reality. There's that clear, there's that cliche of hurt people, hurt people, but that's completely true like people right. who've been hurt 
do tend to hurt others in this way. And, and the fact that they're hurting others who are also marginalized is heartbreaking. But like, that's such a truth. And you can't divide the entire human race into like, are you a villain or are you a victim? And that's it. And it's what's more, so you, you can't cut off empathy or love for people who are caught in these loops or who are, you know, perpetuating things that have been done to them. Yeah. Not that you have to put up with it personally or endorse it or enable it. But like you said, you can't just paint those people as monsters and move on. Right. You know, it's, that's, it's just another shunning is harm too. (laughs) Unfortunately. And it's just a shallow, like, way to see the world. It's not a very, like, useful, constructive way to see the world. And it's a really shitty way to make art. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Total ass. Yeah, like, we have, I mean, we have tortured, fucked up, you know, Don Trapers and stuff for, for straights. We, you know, the queer community deserves, like, a, a Walter White or a Don Draper or something. <laughs> right. Man, I was just reading this great essay about the problematic man dramas mm. by my, my good friend, Shanti Collins, who's a, a wonderful film and TV critic. And he was talking about how the fantasy of those things is that the men are guilty. <laughs> right. And it blew my mind. I was like, Oh shit, that's the whole thing. That's it. Now it makes total sense to me. Yeah. Because the real men in real life do not care. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they just don't, you know, they're, they're, they're Michael Bloomberg. They're they're in the the Epstein sex journal, and and they do not. They truly do not give a shit. Going what? Why is everyone mad at me? This is some bullshit. Oh, right? Like oh, you rape one child, and all of a sudden, <laughs> yeah. Jesus, I don't look. Just get over it. <laughs> yeah, just uh, someone's asking me to experience a consequence to one of my actions. What the fuck? It's, it's like that. Uh, that onion article, wealthy teen nearly experiences consequence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or or the, my favorite tweet, which is me sewing. All oh, right, this rules. Me reaping. What the fuck? <laughs> this sucks. Oh, that's great. I think that maybe makes a good segue into the idea of going beyond the sense of good and evil. A lot of Isabel Falls detractors expressed an alarming belief that art falls into this very straightforward spectrum of helpful to harmful right and that's it if something is didactic and positive and morally pure and it makes you feel good and it has a happy ending it's helpful and if something's expressive and has negative emotions and is messy and doesn't deliver a tidy moral lesson and it makes you feel shitty it's harmful and for many of them the helicopter story was harmful it made them feel kind of bad feelings and there wasn't some little like st- sailor moon segment here's what the lesson of this story was thing at the end right. it didn't have a haze code happy ending where the good guys win and the bad guys are are defeated and moral order is restored so it's harmful and it has to be condemned and Let's really unpack that mindset and talk about the horrifying consequences of it, not just for art, but I think specifically for queer art. There's certainly a lot to be said. Um, (laughs) Something I've been talking about recently with my partner, Sam, is the mindset behind this sort of uh, fictional fascism Mm. that that everything must uphold this single monomyth about good queerness and how we fit into the world and how we're all 
supporting each other and healing from our trauma and doing a perfect job. Right. And more specifically, the sort of blind, extremely violent rage that comes when someone is perceived to have bucked that. Mm. And something Sam was telling me, they're a physician's scribe and mm. are, are pretty well versed in trauma and oh. sort of the ins and outs of it. And they were talking to me about reactive attachment disorders and how sometimes a person living with that feels something and their immediate reaction is to make anyone who makes them angry or uncomfortable feel that. Mm. So that if you're an author and you make such a person uncomfortable with your fiction, there's this extremely strong urge to push it back at you. I see. I need you to feel what I'm feeling. That's justice in this situation. Mm. That distress is being batted back and forth like a beach ball. Yikes. Which I, I think is surely part of the equation, at least. Yeah. But there is this this need to be good. Right. That, you know, personally just uh, has no traction in my life. So it can be, <laughs> it can be really hard for me to, to get my arms around it. And I, I think it connects back to assimilationism mm. that there's this idea that conformity and not, not really kindness, but niceness. Mm. Those are, are desirable qualities in the queer community. Right. Like Ellen DeGeneres. Right. As the, exactly. Like she's nice. She hugs George W. Bush, even though he tried to stop her from getting married for years and years. And he's a war criminal, but she's nice. She's everyone's friend. That's our, that's right. the ideal. And it's no, <laughs> you know, I think ultimately what it is for me and I, this is a very weird quote to pull, but Richard Nixon, <laughs> huh? I don't remember who he was talking about, but once said, he's nice. I don't give a damn. Lots of people are nice. You can walk out onto the street and find five nice men. And it really is just sort of this unexceptional kind of meaningless quality. Yeah. yeah. You know, being inoffensive doesn't really say anything about you except that you're not offensive. Right. And in fact... I would say that it's correct to associate those qualities with collaboration, you know, mm. with, with people who are willing to go along with the injustice around them for the sake of not making waves. Yeah, I can see that. <sighs> you know, certainly it lends itself to an in-community focus to so much of their punitive energy. Yeah, and that I think is what we saw with the helicopter story a lot is that there was... So, I mean, they went after this this poor girl so hard, and it's like, I, so much harder, I think, than they would against, like, a, a cis person, maybe, who said something mildly, I don't know, transphobic or something. And it, like, I, I've read some statements by, like, queer authors um, I, about how nerve-wracking it is and how afraid they were of, of talking about it. I think Yoon Ha Lee was basically forced out of the closet but generally avoided writing about trans issues because he was afraid that like he would get kind of this kind of response for it because he was still working through a lot. And also his financial situation was he was really dependent on his parents. And so he couldn't really out himself very much, but, but it's like often when you're working through something emotionally, you have these complicated feelings and you're working through them 
and they don't always add up to something that's tidy. But if you can't let that out, then it's like you're gonna you're going to be sort of suppressing this big part of your community and and this something that is maybe not tidy, but it's an emotional truth that is worth talking about and is worth looking at. Absolutely, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Absolutely. <laughs> Just no one has a clean life. Yeah. Even even the most idyllic childhoods are, are sort of inherently traumatic. And we all carry that with us to the rest of our lives and our, into our formation as adults. And for queer people who have a higher rate of, of being abused by parents and partners, right? we're even less likely to come out unscathed. And this idea that we can't, air our wounds or just scream once in a while. Yeah. I think is, is deeply hateful. Yeah. But to to get back specifically to this idea of moving beyond good and evil, I think, you know, this is one of the first things that any CBT therapist will tell you is Hmm. just that those aren't very useful ideas, Hmm. you know, determining which actions are good and which actions are bad is mostly going to be a waste of your time and everyone else's. Huh. Not not in like a broader sense, you know, like obviously war is bad. Creating a right. famine is bad. Right. But in terms of like how we make art and how we think about ourselves and others, you know, you're not bad for being angry. You're not yeah. evil for having had a bad life. You're not irredeemable for having written something that made a bunch of people upset. Yeah. And it's it's hard to communicate that because people yeah. really, they feel that it's one-to-one. I'm wondering, as a horror writer, do you feel like there's actually more room in horror to explore queer issues like this in depth? Like, I read this really awesome article that was about horror cinema, and it pointed out that horror cinema has a lot more, like, very frank, very open depictions not just of queerness but also of just queer sexual acts of of like gay sex in in a way that you don't really see in other genres not in like fantasy romance comedies there might be a gay character but to actually show uh, any of that the name of that article oh i gotta i gotta look it up god damn it (laughs) um i'm asking because i think i might have written it oh god um I'm finding it the abominable act. Yep, that's me. (laughs) Oh, God, damn it. Sorry about that. No, that's fine. That's fine. That's great. (laughs) I'm very flattered. That's a little embarrassing. I'm bad at remembering names attached to articles. But yes, you wrote that. So maybe you should talk about it. (laughs) It's a really good article, by the way. Thank you so much. I I was was quite proud of it. So basically, the article says, and I, I stand by this completely, that within horror which is expected to transgress, there's so much more room to depict deviant sexuality. And and by deviant, I mean, you know, in the eyes of popular culture. Mm. But there's, there's this openness to experiences that are coded as disgusting or unacceptable within horror right. that you do not find in other places. You know, even one of my jobs before I was a full-time writer is that I worked for a lesbian romance press as a proofreader Hmm. i worked there for probably two or three years and i i would say i probably proofed 60 70 books wow 
and nowhere in any of these books, which are, are basically the, the lesbian equivalent of, you know, beach reads or yeah, supermarket. Harlequin romance right, novels. Supermarket a, bodice a fainting rippers. damsel on the cover <laughs> yeah. and a man with huge pecs. Yeah. There was basically no non-normative sex in any of them. Oh, how boring. It was all just like, all right, two women have a lot of feelings and then one of them kisses the other between her breasts and down her chest and then performs oral sex. And it's just like, okay, I'm so glad for you and the one time you've had sex in your life. <laughs> but, you know, even within these sort of uh, stable markets for queer experience, there is, is very little that pushes pushes at the, the bounds of what's socially acceptable. And in horror, even if it doesn't meet with, with a, a happy reception, right? it's expected. You know, I've had my share of angry readers and upset emails about things that I wrote, but I've had a lot too more, I think, pretty definitely from people who say like, wow, you know, having all of this really messy, difficult stuff laid out is so powerful to me. And I feel empowered to talk about it myself. Um, yeah. You know, not, not to pat myself on the back here. I don't think this is unique to me. I think that this is what happens when writers like, you know, Tori Peters or Porpentine start to create a readership is that experiences we've all been having alone start to feel more universal. And there's a sense of community that comes with that. Yeah. And the truth is, especially as a trans person, you're going to have a lot of ugly thoughts about yourself. Hmm. You know, for some of us day in and day out and not hearing that reflected in art about you. Right. You know, it makes you feel just as big a failure as art about cis people does. Right. Like you're supposed to be perfectly confident on top of everything else, which is not a realistic expectation, I don't think. Right. Or have some cute little monologue about, oh, my dysphoria, which is defined as, <laughs> and then your cis friend tells you you're beautiful, actually, and then you go to the bar. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's all it takes. If you have like a weird body image, someone tells you you're pretty and you're like, cool, I'm cured. Yeah, it's definitely. My eating disorder's done. Yeah. No, I just, <laughs> I just don't have one anymore. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, you think I'm pretty. I'm fine. No, it doesn't work that way, sweetie. Right. You just sort of feed things into the furnace of it until eventually you die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of cruel, isn't it? To like, to be a, a person who's got so much bullshit heaped on you. And now there's this expectation that, like, why aren't you happy enough? Right. And, and, like, and oh. also it can't show. <laughs> yeah. And ideally yeah, you shouldn't unfair. even have it. Yeah, it's like stabbing someone and getting mad because there's blood everywhere. It's like, you bled everywhere. Like, right, that is so Because I stabbed you, come on. <laughs> you know, I'll go back to what I said earlier. I think it really is incumbent on all of us as individuals and as a community to react gently to work yeah. that, that queer and trans people are doing. And I, I think many of us really need to learn the skill to say, oh, this isn't for me. And then, yeah. and then shut your fucking mouth. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's valuable. Uh, or I didn't get this, or I didn't like this, but I can stop reading this now. Right, and I, I don't need to have a take. 
Yeah. I don't need to, <laughs> I don't need to make some kind of assumption about the author's morality or beliefs. You know, maybe I don't understand this isn't the best launching point for determining what kind of person wrote it. Right, right. And just <laughs> this weird demonstrative, uh, the, I don't know, pissing contest or something to show like who can be the maddest at this thing. And uh, it, I, I like I know the term virtue signaling is really shitty and it's usually used in like this fucked up context. But no, this I don't is know what else to call one. what just happens. You know, <laughs> it's uh, it's performative. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it, 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 it really did feel like that. And it, it's this, like you're just, trying to shed the, the stink of, of moral transgression and, right. and prove that you are, are smarter and better. Right. And they're in, and in the middle of all this, like, okay, the person you're targeting with this is an actual human being who made herself vulnerable and really raw in a way that I thought was just amazing. Right. And, and you decided to take a shit in her sunroof. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good work. Yeah. We've truly oh, seen what a nice person you are. Do you do you feel like in terms of a lot of uh, SFF in a lot of in terms of a lot of sci-fi fantasy in some ways we might be kind of going backward to like the golden age because you know golden age sci-fi it was very boys adventure oh yeah type stuff and then we kind of had new wave in like the 60s and 70s you know ursula Le Guin, philip k dick these works that were very like challenging and stylistic and experimental and strange and just all over the map but i feel like kind of now maybe since around the 2000s we've just got gone back instead of boys adventure now it's like girls ya adventure yeah but it's this very kid like idea this very like they're judging writing by the standards by which you judge a book for kids <laughs> i do i do think that we've regressed in some ways in in science fiction and fantasy and i would i would feel more upset about it except that every day i see some new trans person pop up who's just making the most beautiful shit imaginable mm. totally unapologetically and that, you know, I've, I've made a personal decision that that's just going to be more meaningful to me than what some New York Times bestselling author does next. Yeah. And I don't, I don't care if none of us ever finds an agent or a publisher. I don't care if when we die, our work disappears. It's there now. And yeah, that's meaningful enough to me. Yeah, absolutely. Now that takes us to our, our next point, which is recommended reading. What are some of your favorite messy, grimy, unfiltered, uncomfortable queer writers or stories? And this can be genre or non-genre, just people who escape that trap of respectability and fucking go for it and tell the truth in all its glorious beauty and ugliness. Hell yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I mentioned Porpentine earlier. Yeah. I really love her work uh, due to ridiculous trans community bullshit. We don't talk, um, uh. but that's neither here nor there. A new author I've really been enjoying lately, Briar Ripley Page, who's uh, just starting out publishing short stories on their own. Really gorgeous, like abject body horror. There's this wonderful story they wrote Ooh. about a self-loathing woman who manifests this little pin-sized hole in her chest that eats anything you put near it. Whoa. It's really, it's gorgeous. It's just this like endless navel-gazing retreat into what it is to think that you're unclean. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really something. I think their uh, their gum road is called Flame Swallower. Flame Swallower. Yeah. That's neat. What else have I... Oh, I love Tori Peters. Mm. She wrote Infect Your Friends and Loved Ones, which is a inspiration for something I'm working on right now, actually. And her, her story is about this future America in which a retrovirus has made all human beings stop independently producing sex hormones. Huh. Um, so everyone has to take hormones like a trans person. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, uh, it's so good. Um, it's so personal. It's so messy and, you know, uncomfortable and unpleasant. And it touches on so many of the things you're not supposed to touch on, you know, like from what I understand, you're not supposed to, write about how trans women do sex work anymore because it's stereotyping. Well, I think that's very stupid. Yeah. I was a sex worker <laughs> for two years and I'm not ashamed of it. It's a job that I had. I would say that it probably fucked me up less than most of the straight, like nine to five jobs I've had, <laughs> you know, working for yourself is always kind of baseline, less stressful. Um, mm. But so the, the story deals sort of with sex work and with like, divides built around appearance and passing within the trans community and it's just a really it's a beautiful book there's this um this wonderful part that really stuck in my head where the narrator explains the term brick which is a trans woman who is never going to pass oh and then explains the term masonry which is relationships between bricks and then says that no one but bricks could have come up with such a cruel word for love. Oh, wow. Because you have to know something to really accurately hurt it. God damn. I mean, it's just incredible. Tori is, is really exceptional. God um, damn. That is fucking devastating. <laughs> yeah. No, it's ruinous. Um, she also wrote the masker, which is about this sort of fictional fetish where cis men wear full body like silicone neoprene woman suits. Ooh. It's very, very, very good. Yeah, that sounds so interesting. Yeah, it's really cool. Nice. <sighs> Let's see. What else have I been reading lately? I'm seeing here Black Dresses. Is oh, written yeah. On that one. Uh, not, not fiction, music. Oh. But they're a fantastic band. It's two trans women. And their songs are just like so about these sort of abject, delirious, medicated experiences of love and sex and hmm. otherness that are, are really unique to being being trans. Let's see, right now I'm in the middle of uh, Familia by K.M. Claude, which is this sort of Romanesque, violent fantasy book about a wealthy family collapsing under the weight of its own corruption that's fantastic um, nice yeah and then, that is extremely my shit yeah it's 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 short but it's very very good it's very sexy and i'm about to start uh the pervert by remy boydell and michelle mm. perez which i've heard a lot about very positively from many people uh, i haven't actually gotten into it yet nice and it's a little hard for me to think of examples right now because i've i've been just completely elbow deep in reading books about the black plague wow yeah i'm doing this novel this summer 
called In Hideous Ruin, which is about a flagellant. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is cool. Thank you. It's, it's sort of a, about the experience of being in a catastrophe you have no control over and fumbling for a way to influence it, which is what the flagellants were doing. You know, They thought that if they brutalized themselves enough, maybe God would forgive humanity and end the plague. Right, right. Um, which sounds pretty romantic. And, you know, it's important not to forget that they also ran around murdering Jewish people. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, they were not. It was not a good time to be Jewish. Ooh. I mean, when is? But That's not great. No, no, it's not great. That sounds really interesting. Uh, yeah, hopefully it'll be coming out late this summer. Yeah, that sounds fucking awesome. Where are some other places we can find your work and support your work? Uh, so I'm on Patreon. Gretchen Falker Merton, and I have a Gumroad store where you can buy my novel *Ego Hominy Lupus*, which is about a medieval housewife losing her mind in Ooh. Northumberland, and my novellas *No End Will Be Found*, which is about the witch trials of Wurzburg in 17th-century Germany, mm. and my science fiction novella *Dreadnought*, which is about giant biomechs and you know, distraught teenage pilots. It's it's kind of like Evangelion by way of body dysmorphic disorder. Nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy with the way that turned out. So yeah, Gumroad Patreon. I also just wrote uh, a pretty atypical project for me. My friends Julia Graffer and Sean Collins and I wrote a zine of erotic fiction based on the Patrick Swayze movie Roadhouse. <laughs> nice it's called all fucked up and it's on uh julia's etsy store that sounds amazing i not to not to toot our collective horn here but the unholy trinity really knocked it out of the park i bet honestly i can i can kind of get it i can kind of i love that movie it's so good it's so amazing just bonkers in the best way i love it's, it's so it's like if Star Wars were about assholes who hung out at bars. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean it just the audacity of that movie too just for just going full tilt just got it. Really yeah, there's a monster truck scene. Of course there is. Yeah. I you know what's great about that is I'm sure the only reason it exists is that he figured out he had access to a monster truck. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. And that and is... nothing will ever top the fact that the man's name is Rowdy Harrington. Right. Um, speaking of wonderful roadhouse writing, uh, Sean last year wrote an essay every single day about roadhouse. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. And they, they vary from like these sort of wild digressions about the inner lives of characters to, you know, joke meme formats. And uh, my favorite one is uh, he wrote this mock uh, transcript of Orson Welles recording a commercial about Roadhouse. <laughs> and it just, God, it reduced me to tears. Uh, anyway, we've, we've pretty well gone off the rails here. <laughs> that is okay. That, that all sounds just utterly bananas and I'm 100% here for it. Um, but I, I think that should, since we've, we've ended up in a, to a strange roadhouse digression i think that should be it for this episode <laughs> well thank you so much for having me on raquel 
thank you for coming on. That was really great. And thank you, audience, for listening. If you like what you heard, head on over to patreon.com slash writegood and sign up. Ah, what the fuck? Cat! <laughs> Let me try that again. Cat, you're just, you, she, she, this is usually her snack time, so she's upset. I'm I sorry. would just like to note to the audience that my cat has been here the whole time and has been a perfect, well-behaved gentleman. My cats are little assholes. <laughs> I love them so much. But okay, let's try that. <laughs> That's all for this episode. If you like what you heard, head on over to patreon.com slash writegood and sign up. All subscribers get early access to our episodes and access to the Discord server, where you can suggest episode topics. Book club members get a monthly bonus episode in which we discuss a noteworthy piece of fiction in depth. So join the club. And join us next time when we talk about what it means to be a writer during the climate crisis. Until then, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with R.S. Benedict, hosted by R.S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. This has been a Kitty Sneezes production. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysneezes.com. That's R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysneezes.com. If you'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. KittySneezes.com in color. <laughs>